in. I'm Dr. Amber Klimczak. And we are Two Peaks in a Pod. Well, hi. Welcome back, everybody. We are so excited today. This is a historic moment. It is the very first time we've had a guest on our podcast. Yes, and we're so lucky to have her. Yes, yes. And um, she's going to be going over a topic that comes up a lot with our patients who are undergoing fertility treatment. Um, this, this is going to be covering dermatology questions that we hear quite a bit. And Dr. K has a friend who's a wonderful dermatologist that she's going to introduce for us. Yes. Yeah, so hi, everyone. So today we have Dr. Shadi Damanpour, and she is a board-certified dermatologist, and she's actually my dermatologist, so obviously I have a lot of faith in her. And she does a good mix, I think, of medical dermatology and cosmetic dermatology, so she can tell us a little bit more about her practice. But we have tons of FAQs for her from our patients and even from ourselves that we're really excited to dive into. So yes, Dr. Dan- I have to just interject real quick too. So I've I've never met you before, but I already have to say amazing work because remember how I told you the other day? Yes. I'm like, why are you glowing today? Your skin looks amazing. And so I was trying to already find out all the secrets. So yes, yes. So good job already. <laughs> All right. Thank Dr. you Dan both for having me. Yes. I really appreciate it. I'm so excited to be here and hopefully I can help answer some questions. Yeah. Do you want to start out by telling our listeners a little bit about your practice, where you guys are located, if anyone's interested in coming to see you? Of course. So um, like Amber said, I'm a board certified dermatologist. I practice at North Dallas Dermatology Associates and I uh, see a mix of cosmetic and medical patients. Um, we see pediatrics, we do procedures and, um, you know, pr- very comprehensive dermatology care. Amazing. Are you on social media? Are you on Instagram or anything? Do you want to let us know your handle? I am on Instagram, um, Dr. Damanpour. Okay, great. Right. How do you spell it? It's D-A-M-A-N-P-O-U-R. Okay, perfect. That way everybody knows where to find you. And then do you see virtual patients? Because we do get patients um, or people that listen from all over. Do you see any virtual patients? So it's tough in dermatology. I think, you know, to see virtual patients, it really is a case by case situation. It depends on um, what they're being seen for, but definitely some patients we do. I would say most of our patients that we see in person. Amazing. Okay, Okay, great. Well, I think Dr. K has a whole list of questions for you. You know, um, even just last minute, I had mentioned to one of my patients that we were going to be talking with you and she sent me a bunch of questions on the patient portal. So we just have all types of things to ask. Amazing. Okay, so we'll dive into our questions. So just to our listeners, we did want to just make an announcement that none of this should be taken as medical advice. This is just sort of us investigating and answering some of our own questions that we had, but we really say that you should defer to your doctor that's treating you at the time if any of these are directly affecting you. Um, Okay, so of course, Botox, such a hot topic. I think everyone's into it, no matter what phase of their life they're in. We have young 20-year-olds getting it. um, And then obviously, as we age, we're really interested in getting it done. So a lot of our patients who are trying to conceive are wondering, is it safe Slash, would you allow patients who are trying to conceive to continue their Botox regimen? And how do you manage that? So I get this question all the time also. And I think it's so hard because in general, in pregnancy, there's so many limitations, right? And, you know, 
people are not always looking and feeling their best. And then we as physicians are telling them, oh, you can't do all these things that you used to do to make yourself feel good. So, um, you know, during pregnancy, we we don't do any Botox treatments. Um, when people are trying to conceive, it's tricky because um, they don't really know if they're pregnant or not, which is the concern. So, um, you know, a lot of people will come in and they don't think they're pregnant and they'll get a treatment and a week later they're like, whoops, I was pregnant and things are usually fine. Um, But that's kind of the reason we still caution patients when they are trying to conceive, not that it would have a lasting effect, you know, should they were to become pregnant down the line, but if they happen to be pregnant and not know it, Um, there's just not great research on Botox in pregnancy. Um, and you know, there are a few retrospective studies, but no actual studies have been done. Um, and so it's just hard, you know, as a physician, when you want to do no harm to, you know, give something to someone that you're not sure what the outcome would be. Yeah, absolutely. And I think this is just one of our biggest struggles is there's so many different medications or even supplements or things like that. And we get this question constantly too. Is it safe? And really for us to say 100% it's safe, we need to see a study. And oftentimes they say, you know what, it's probably not ethical to be doing these studies in pregnant women, right? And so the only data we get sometimes is from those patients who maybe got the treatment when they were pregnant, didn't know they were pregnant, and then they can go back and look to see, well, did anything happen? And so I think from what we know so far, it doesn't look like it necessarily causes any problems, but none of us would feel comfortable saying it's safe without seeing those studies that unfortunately are probably just never going to be done, right? Right, exactly. Mm-hmm. And Dr. Tamapore, so tell us a little bit about Botox. Is the idea about why it may be safe, even if we had a whoops, we accidentally conceived a couple of weeks later after getting a treatment, is the idea that it's just local mm-hmm. or is the thought that maybe this is going to disperse and have some sort of effect in other places in our body? Botox is um, a very large molecule. And so when it's injected properly intramuscularly into the skin, there should be very little systemic absorption. It doesn't really affect the rest of your body except for where it's injected. Um, And that's even in you. So for it to, the thought that it might even cross the blood placenta barrier as this large molecule that is barely absorbed is very, very low. Um, But again, we don't know 100%. So that's why it's presumed that there, you know, probably isn't any Mm -hmm. um, risk to the baby, but it's not, it's not in itself a teratogen. It's not known to harm a fetus. I think another kind of important point to uh, point out too is another reason why it's so hard to study is 
for pregnancies, we know that 25% of pregnancies can end in miscarriage, right? So just because somebody did something and then had a miscarriage after doesn't mean that that's what's caused it because miscarriage is so common to start with. But I think, again, that's why a lot of us feel uncomfortable recommending things because we know that there's the psychology to it of, oh, if a patient did it and she happened to have a miscarriage that she would have had anyways, she might go back and say, well, it was because I did this or that. So for example, I know of massage places, they will not massage you if you're in the first trimester. And do I really think it's because a massage can cause a a, a miscarriage? Well, no, but they don't want to be blamed for it, you know? I know it's always a bummer when you're pregnant. I know that's when you need a massage. That's when you need it most. I used to hate that. (laughs) Okay. So a couple more questions about Botox. Um, How do you feel about Botox postpartum? And when are we allowed to maybe restart treatments after we deliver a baby? So postpartum, no issue. Breastfeeding, on the other hand, same same thing as during pregnancy because, you know, again, big molecule probably doesn't absorb systemically, probably will not cross into the breast milk, but who wants to risk giving an infant botulism? Right. So um, that being said, that's, you know, this is not the opinion of every single dermatologist and you know you may find some people who will you know give botox during to someone who is breastfeeding and um you know those babies and patients are probably doing fine um but i think overall um most physicians will you know choose the safer route I would say, and I haven't looked, so maybe this could be a good opportunity for a study, but this would probably be easier to study in that maybe you could find breastfeeding women that are done breastfeeding, they're about to wean, give them some Botox and then study Mm -hmm. the breast milk to see if there's any Botox found in the breast milk. Um, So that could maybe be something that at least is more realistic on being able to get an answer to at some point. Um, Okay, so another question about Botox. This is something sort of new, I think, that's circulating. I guess there's some data that's come out. But obviously, a lot of our patients are going through fertility treatment, such as IVF, which is one of our more involved treatment options. And there was some question as to whether Botox during an IVF treatment may actually lead to poor outcomes because I guess Botox is, can cause vasoconstriction or kind of restriction of blood flow, maybe even to ovaries, follicles, something like that. Have you seen anything about this or do you have any more information for us? This was sort of new to me. I actually haven't. Um, I haven't seen that. And I, you know, Botox doesn't have any vasoconstrictive Effect. So I don't see why it would affect someone um, during a fertility cycle, you know, in terms of their fertility or egg quality mm-hmm. or, you know, blood flow or anything like that. Because like I said, it's a it's a nerve um, inhibitor. So awesome. it shouldn't have any vasoconstrictive effects. 
Okay. Yeah, I was really um, surprised because I know you had mentioned that to me the mm-hmm. other day too. I had not ever known or heard of any yeah. restrictions on that. Um, but I do, you know, and I'll have to look at, you know, um, the the study. But one of the things I'm thinking about is maybe people that need Botox to start with might be a different group of people than maybe somebody who's not on Botox. So maybe somebody who's aging prematurely, maybe somebody who's a smoker or a heavy drinker or, you know, maybe all these other factors that cause them to need the Botox in the first place may also be factors mm-hmm. that would be associated with poor egg quality or lower egg number or things like that. So I wonder if maybe there's a, a factor like that because um, it doesn't really logically seem to make sense that a facial Botox um, set of injections would, would cause problems with eggs. Right. That makes yeah. sense. And also Botox is used by a lot of other doctors besides dermatologists for cosmetic reasons. It's used for a lot of medical conditions like pain disorders, by Mm -hmm. neurologists, by gastroenterologists. It's used kind of all over the body and used in much higher quantities. Not that I think that that would necessarily cause vasoconstriction, but again, like you said, those people might be on a host of other medications or have other conditions that are causing, you know, vasoconstriction or poor blood flow to other parts of their body. So um, that might maybe a confounder. Okay. Yeah. So kind of your normal recommendation for somebody who's doing IVF where we have control, we know they're not about to get pregnant. You think it's probably reasonable for them to get Botox, right? Yeah, right before the transfer. Yeah, yeah, right before. <laughs> exactly. Okay, yeah. I think that's kind of what you usually recommend. Too, Absolutely. Right? That's what, what I've been doing until so, this yeah. surfaced and then I got yeah. nervous. I was like, okay, we're yeah. going to tell them a little bit more about what, how did you find that? Um, I think it was like some data social, like on social media that people were okay. commenting on. Other dermatologists actually mm-hmm. were commenting on, is there a concern? Is there not a concern? So we'll yeah. have to look more into like yeah, the medical definitely. literature to see where, where is this coming from? Because yeah. I also, I don't know much about Botox, but I didn't think that it caused vasoconstriction because I feel like that would be an issue when yeah. you're injecting it. Like that's what my concern was. Yeah. Yeah. Mm-hmm. Yeah. Okay, perfect. So um, one thing also that I think makes our patients a little bit different is that not only are they trying to conceive, but often they're trying to conceive for a long time. Um, And so it's tough because there are restrictions on what you can and cannot use. And so I am curious about a couple other medications that maybe are not Botox, but can help with wrinkles, um, but are known to, you know, have pretty severe side effects. So um, let's start off with probably the most extreme of that. Let's talk about like retin-A, retinols. What are your recommendations for women trying to conceive with these topical medications? Um, So retinoin um, or topical retinoids are, you know, one of our go-to treatments for anti-aging, acne. I would prescribe it a million times a day um, (laughs) to everyone. I think it's a great medication. Um, There are definitely risks to the baby with oral retinoids, um, and that's been proven, (laughs) multiple studies, completely unsafe. Um, And so kind of the recommendations for topical retinoids are extrapolated from that. Um, even though there is thought to be pretty low systemic absorption when you're applying a topical retinoid. Um, But 
Because of that, I usually recommend um, women who are trying to conceive to stop their topical retinoid um, before they start trying. Um, Again, it's tricky, you know, in fertility patients because they may be trying for months to years and it's kind of uncertain um, when, you know, they're going to get to that point of implanting. So um, I, you know, always recommend my patients speak to their fertility doctor (laughs) and see, you know, what they're comfortable with. Um, I would, you know, for many, for select patients, I do say maybe just continue it until your transfer um, and then stop it at that point because, you know, again, it's a risk to to the fetus. It's not a risk to the egg. Um, so if you're kind of going through, you know, retrievals and that sort of thing, then I think I would be okay with continuing it if, you know, if you were as their primary physician, um, but definitely, you know, once the transfer happens, you'd probably want to stop. Can you clarify for our listeners? So you mentioned oral medications. So is that Accutane? What medications exactly are you? Yeah, isotretinoin, acetretin um, are oral retinoids. And that was, you know, brand name is Accutane. So one of our patient populations that really struggles with acne is PCOS patients, polycystic ovarian syndrome. And so we're always looking for treatment options for them, especially, you know, we have a lot of PCOS patients that maybe aren't trying to get pregnant. So what would you recommend for them for managing their acne? What's effective? And then also patients who do have PCOS and are trying to get pregnant are really struggling with acne. What, what would be your go-to recommendations? So, PCOS not trying to get pregnant, um, I would say probably birth control and plus or minus spironolactone, um, which is an oral medication. And that is a medication that decreases androgen production at the oil glands. So it works really well, not just for PCOS, I would say for all hormonal acne, but especially in PCOS patients. Um, I think the combination of those two is, you know, a game changer for a lot of people who struggle with hormonal acne. Um, And there are several birth controls that are FDA approved for acne. So not all um, oral birth control pills help acne. Um, You know, estrogen is the um, ingredient that's a anti-androgen and some progesterones can make acne worse. So women who are taking like only progestin um, birth control pills may notice worsening of their acne. So it's, it's also important, you know, for people to know which birth control they're taking because um, they might think that it should be helping, but it could actually be making things worse. I think that's just such an important point too, because on our side of things, oftentimes we're seeing PCOS patients just for fertility purposes, but this is something I do always mention to them that in the long term, you may struggle with these things that you thought were maybe just normal or that you had to deal with. And so I just love that there are so many amazing, safe, effective options to really help them with, especially the hair growth. I feel like a lot of times patients are even hesitant to tell me about it because they may find it embarrassing. So maybe they're shaming every day and not telling anybody or anything. 
Um, and so I think it's amazing to um, have those as, as options for when they're not trying to conceive. And I will say commonly, I'll see people very comfortable prescribing birth control pills, but for some reason, a lot people are a lot more hesitant to prescribe spironolactone. And I'm not sure why, maybe it's just because it's not as commonly um, used as, as birth control pills, but um, I agree they can make a huge difference, but it does usually take, I would say, maybe about three to six months to see a really good effect in in, um, Definitely, especially with the birth control, that can be mm-hmm. slower, mm-hmm. I think, for the acne. Um, spironolactone works a little bit quicker um, when started for acne, but it does take a few months. Yeah, and I think the other benefit of them being paired together is that we do know spironolactone can increase risk for birth defects in somebody who were to get pregnant. So at least when they're on birth control pills, we know that they're on a reliable form of contraception as well. So. Mm-hmm. Yeah, I think what's interesting too from a dermatology perspective is you may actually be seeing patients who have not been diagnosed yet, right? You know, they may come for acne and hirsutism mm-hmm. or hair growth, I guess I should say for our audience, and they may not know why they they have this. And so I think that's probably interesting from your side of you might be the first person to raise the question, could you have PCOS? Mm-hmm. Um, So tell us your favorite products for maybe acne prone or even PCOS patients struggling with acne who are trying to conceive. So um, because of the hair growth also with PCOS, one of the most common things that we see um, with acne in this patient population is hyperpigmentation and, you know, discoloration Mm -hmm. just because there's, you know, the acne and then there's the hair follicle and leads to just picking and, you know, a lot of scarring, unfortunately. So um, that's kind of the toughest thing to, that we want to avoid and prevent and because it's tough to treat. So, and with, you know, topical retinoids are a great treatment (laughs) for acne, hyperpigmentation, scarring, but, you know, obviously during pregnancy, we try to avoid that. So I would say definitely, um, I recommend that they incorporate some type of glycolic acid, like an alpha hydroxy acid. And at low concentrations, these are safe during pregnancy. So it would be less than 10% um, can be used. Um, Facials are really great um, during pregnancy um, because, you know, they're safe. There's no medication. Um, Extractions can help to kind of clear those breakouts without leaving as much scarring. Um, Azelaic acid is another great ingredient that can um, help to prevent acne. It's gentle um, and it can help with, you know, redness. Some people have an overlap of rosacea as well. Um, And, you know, sun protection, I would say, is really, really important for that hyperpigmentation component. What SPF Um, do you recommend women wear on their face? 50. 50. Okay. Go big or go home. Yeah. I mean, at least above 30, but most people don't apply enough um, to, for it to be effective. So I tend to recommend at least 50, especially for people who are prone to hyperpigmentation. Um, and, um, and I, I think it tends to work better. It's good. We can be like kind of spotty with our application of 50. Yeah. <laughs> <laughs>
Um, okay, so we, we kind of went over your favorite favorite acne products, um, and then you were mentioning hyperpigmentation. So a lot of our patients do have melasma. So is that similar recommendations? What are some of your best melasma treatments? So um, during pregnancy, um, sunscreen, a hundred percent. With melasma, I always recommend a tinted sunscreen as well, not just SPF 50, but something tinted um, that has additional properties that help to prevent hyperpigmentation. Hats, I would say, are key. Any kind of sun or heat exposure can really, really worsen melasma. So it doesn't have to be sun, like sitting in a sauna or sitting outside in Texas in Mm -hmm. July can worsen melasma, unfortunately. Um, Vitamin C uh, serum is a great treatment and that's safe as well during pregnancy. Um, Topical outside of pregnancy, retinoids um, are great. Um, Hydroquinone we use topically, but that has been shown to have high systemic absorption. So we don't use that during pregnancy or breastfeeding. and topical tranexamic acid is also another um, safe and effective uh, topical treatment for melasma. And I guess I should mention too, because sometimes we'll see this on our part, if we do have a patient who's not trying to get pregnant, who's taking birth control pills, there are some patients where birth control pills can actually contribute to that as well. So um, sometimes that's a discussion as to what is the reason we're on birth control pills? Should we continue and just, you know, treat the melasma versus would it be reasonable to stop the birth control pills and try, you know, something else? So that's kind of something that happens on our side of things Mm -hmm. sometimes as well. I thought that was really interesting what you mentioned about tinted moisturizer. So is there another ingredient in traditional tinted moisturizer that is actually changing the tone of the skin? How does that work? It's called zinc oxide um, and it protects against blue light specifically, um, which is known to worsen hyperpigmentation. Interesting. So, so that's not a basic SPF sunscreen that we would use. No, it would be, it would be in your tinted hmm. um, SPF. Okay. That's really good to know. Yeah. Um, okay. So we have a little bit more and you can definitely say if this is out of your scope of practice, but we have some more esoteric questions for you. <laughs> have you ever seen a skin allergy to progesterone? Cause we have a lot of patients that take progesterone supplementation. And is that something that you've ever seen happen? I have and a friend actually. Um, and it's very rare. There, there are two types of progesterone um, dermatitis, and both are very rare. One is um, a reaction to your own progesterone that you're producing. So those people, you know, kind of get this cyclical dermatitis and get misdiagnosed as eczema and, um, you know, goes on for years and years until someone finally does like a, a skin allergy test and it turns out that it's progesterone. Um, and then there's, um, what are some of the symptoms of that? Is that like only in the second half of your menstrual cycle you're affected in that? Right. Okay. Okay. Exactly. Mm -hmm. Um, and then there's, there, people can have progesterone hypersensitivity, which is, you know, kind of like an allergy to uh, exogenous or prescribed progesterone. I'm, I don't know if you see this frequently, but it's pretty, I've only seen it a handful of times, um, and it can present like any allergy, like hives or 
uh, or rash and can lead to anaphylaxis in the, you know, more severe cases, but it's very rare. Do you see it often? I've never seen it. Yeah, and I did see a case in fellowship, which was more the first one that you were talking about, where she would have cyclic eczema and things like that. But I will say what we probably more commonly see is that they end up having an allergy to the oil mm-hmm. that the progesterone is compounded yeah, in. All the time, yeah. So for example, one of the most common oils is sesame oil that progesterone is compounded in, but sesame is an allergen for many people, including actually yeah. my own son. He has anaphylaxis to sesame. Um, so if if we do have somebody who takes their progesterone injection and it's getting red and itchy and all the rest of it, oftentimes our first intervention will be to switch to a different type of oil. So a lot of times I'll use ethyl ole mm-hmm. instead. Um, patients seem to have much less reaction um, to that one as well. But mm-hmm. I think that was most of our questions. Did you have any other questions? Do we want to ask? Yes. About? Okay. Um, hair loss. <laughs> <laughs> so, you know, certainly we know that hormones can contribute to hair loss. So for example, it's not uncommon for patients after having a baby to lose a lot of hair or, um, or even just maybe after a stressful or traumatic event and everything. Um, because we're hormone doctors, we get people who will come to us because people always tell them, check your hormones, check your hormones. Um, and sometimes we'll check the hormones and they're totally fine. So I was just curious if you could share a little bit more about how we should evaluate somebody for hair loss and then some effective treatment options that they could take when they're trying to get pregnant. So um, hair loss is like a gigantic topic and it's such a broad category and there's so many different causes of hair loss and so many different diagnoses and the treatments are very specific to what type of hair loss a person is having. Um, So I would say if someone is struggling with hair loss, that's um, not your classic telogen effluvium, which is, you know, rapid shedding after birth, or like you said, some kind of traumatic event or hospitalization, illness, COVID, something like that, then um, I I would just recommend they see a dermatologist. Um, I don't think hormone testing provides any value um, because, and I tell my patients come in all the time wanting um, to have their hormones checked for their acne and, you know, that sort of thing. And I just tell them it's not clinically relevant to, you know, what we're going to do in terms of your treatment. It's not going to change the management and it might not even correlate to what we're seeing um, just because there's such a wide range. I'm sure there, you know, are other reasons why their hormones should be checked, but um, I would say acne and hair loss are probably not up there, um, except for very, very few select cases. Um, so for telogen effluvium, when someone is having, you know, rapid, um, shedding, then unfortunately like reassurance is key. Um, most people are sure they're going to go bald and, you know, I'm, I'm sure we've all had it and it's terrifying and mm-hmm. yeah. see clumps of hair, you know, just coming out of floors cover. It's devastating mm-hmm. for any woman, um, yeah. Yeah. but it is temporary and it's not scarring, which means the hair follicle is fine. The hair will grow back. Um, 
things that can help are uh, vitamin supplements um, like Nutrafol or Vivascal are great supplements to take um, in general for hair. Real quick, I want to know, are those ones they can take while they're doing IVF or trying to conceive? I do get that one quite a bit. That's what I'm asking about the about those two. Yeah. Um, I would, I would say no, I would, you know, during, I would just have a, use a prenatal Mm -hmm, during mm -hmm. that time. And then your hair is also going to be great. That's true. (laughs) Prenatal vitamin. Um, but biotin on its own, which most people come in and are already taking is not effective at all, um, for any kind of hair loss. So I try to tell people all the time, like save your money, um, yes. Well, and it interferes with some of our lab assays mm-hmm. actually exactly. as well. So, mm-hmm. right. Um, so, you know, definitely um, vitamins can help. Time, um, topical Rogaine is very effective for telogen effluvium. Um, some people do uh, PRP, which is mm-hmm. platelet-rich plasma injections, and that's done in a dermatologist's office if someone's really struggling um, with telogen effluvium. But most importantly, it's you know all going to grow back. Yeah, and for Rogaine, that's something they probably shouldn't do while trying to conceive as well, right? No. Both male and female side. Just Correct. yeah. Okay, mm-hmm. just want to make sure on that. Yeah, yeah. Thank you. Very, very helpful information. Yes, this is awesome. I learned a lot. Yes. Really appreciate it. <laughs> okay. Well, I think we have actually so many questions. Maybe we should have a part two at some point too. Yeah. <laughs> we really appreciate your time, everyone. This is her day off. So we just want to say oh, thank you for, for spending so much time on your day off. Thank, thank you for having me. Yes. Well, thank you so much. And thank you for being our very first guest. You made history today. I'm so excited. <laughs> okay, great. Well, thank Thank you guys. We will see y'all next week. Have a good one. Bye. Bye.